everybody, this is the Reverend Jack Alvey, my friend and co-host, the Reverend Josiah Rangers, with this Anglican Life, a moderate voice for contentious times. We're glad you've joined us. We're on to episode seven. Josiah, won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> Jack, it sounds like we're about to launch into Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and maybe we are. The scripture this week is the Good Samaritan. Jack, I know you've been a priest for 10 years, uh, with all your theological training, with all of your experience, deep wisdom. I imagine one thing you are uniquely suited to do is to summarize the parable of the Good Samaritan. Summarize. Okay, we can do that real quick. So, um, a lawyer wants to test Jesus. A lot of people want to test Jesus, catch him in a trap. And so he asked Jesus, what must he do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically said, well, you know the law. What does it say? And the lawyer quotes what's called the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And your neighbor is yourself. And then the lawyer wants to justify himself. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? And then this is where the story comes in. Right? We're, we're done asking uh, intellectual questions. Now we're asking questions that are, uh, instead of questions that, um, um, you know, uh, we're asking questions about the heart. Heart matters. And he tells a story that's meant to elicit an emotional response and how someone was beat up on the side of a dangerous road and how a priest and a Levite, two people who were supposed to help him, didn't and passed by on the other side. And then a Samaritan, this would be like a member of Al-Qaeda in today's language, stopped and not only helped the man, but he gave him a hotel room and a place to stay, and he made sure he recovered. And then at the end of the story, the, um, the, Jesus asks, who was the neighbor to the man in need? And the man couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan, but he did say, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus' response was, go and do likewise. Hey, Jack. Um, that was a great summary. And one thing I'd like to add is, you know, a lot of people don't really understand what Samaria is. And Samaria is uh, part of the northern kingdom that divided immediately after King David. Everybody knows King David. And King David unified the whole of Israel as the first time that all the tribes had been a unified kingdom as a great and everyone celebrated. And then he died and then it all fell apart and split immediately with his sons into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom and then the kingdom of Judah. And, uh, which is where Jerusalem is. In that northern kingdom, part of that was Samaria, and Samaria was the capital. And it's just north of Jerusalem. It's just outside Jerusalem. You know, maybe if you were walking, uh, maybe a few hours or, or less than a day, certainly. But, you know, in a car today, maybe, you know, half an hour or an hour to drive from Jerusalem to, to what would have been Samaria. And it's, um, in part, the, that relationship that had been part of the kingdom together but also because they had split and it had been split now by the time of Jesus for 600 years and so there's real division so it was kind of like a family feud that just kind of descended over 600 years where the Samaritans were in some way related to to the folks in Jerusalem but in a lot of ways they weren't they'd also had a lot of commingling with uh, other people from other areas they had been uh, invaded by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians and they had their own exile experience. And so they had a lot of inter intermarriage. 
and their faith was very different. And so the people hearing this, the lawyer especially, who's hearing the story, would hear a Samaritan uh, who, who's a neighbor, who's close, somebody who might be walking down the road any time, but also someone who's ritually unclean, someone who's been defiled, someone who, uh, it's not just like an Alabama-Auburn rivalry, it's someone who really is bad, really is maybe scum of the earth because of this rivalry over 600 years, this feud kind of between the tribes of Israel. And so the Samaritan represents not just someone you wouldn't expect to help out. I think the Samaritan represents someone who, who you wouldn't even want to be on the same road as, right? You wouldn't expect anything good or decent like, to come from uh, them. Yeah, Amy Jill Levine, uh, Jewish um, New Testament scholar, basically tells you to think of the last person in the world that you would want to receive help from, and that is the Samaritan. So who's the last person in the world you would want to receive help from? So, you know, what's interesting is Jesus turns to this lawyer. He's like, okay, so I told you the story. So who is the one? Who's the one that is, who does right? And the lawyer says, he doesn't say what kind of person it is. He doesn't say the type of person or the profession of the person or even the nationality of the person. He says, the one who shows mercy. The one who shows mercy is the one who's doing the will of God. What do you think about that? Well, you know, it, it, you know, it's interesting to see how the course of the conversation goes. I mean, initially the conversation is about um, being governed by the law, like governed by what, what the law says. And this lawyer knows every 600 and whatever many laws there are in the Jewish tradition. He knows every single one of them. And, um, and he asks, what must he do to inherit eternal life? So it starts at a law sort of based we're governed by the law. And by the end of it, we're no longer governed by the law. We are governed by mercy. We are governed by um, the one who shows mercy. You know, and that's the whole, you know, a lot of people in theological circles will talk about law gospel. Um, you know, are we governed by the law or are we governed by the gospel? Are our actions inspired because we're doing what we think we're supposed to be doing? Or are we, are we responding because we know what it is like to receive mercy and therefore we want others to know what it is like to receive mercy because it's this beautiful and wonderful gift well let's talk more about this idea of justice and mercy for just a second because you know these are words we throw around in the church a lot and we talk about god's justice and god's mercy and um maybe it's a good time to kind of define what what that means and what that looks like you know i heard someone describe it like Justice is what we want for other people, and mercy is what we want for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. We think sometimes of the Old Testament as, you know, the justice of God. But I heard someone describe, you know, if you have been really hurt, let's say you've been hurt in an in accident and you've lost a lot uh, because of that, and you go in front of a judge, and, and the judge finds on your behalf and maybe awards you a big settlement or awards you money or, or some damages or something, right? Um, you have received justice. You've been raised up. You've been lifted up. And to that person, it would feel like justice. I've received justice. I've gotten justice. A lot of times we think of justice as something being merited out, like a hammer on an anvil, like you are receiving my justice by going to jail. But often when we talk about justice, especially in the Old Testament, it's that person going before the judge, begging for their help, begging for sustenance and that God's justice doesn't come in this way of a punishment it comes in a way of lifting up and restoring you to wholeness 
And so in that way, justice isn't totally different from mercy. So we talk about God's justice and mercy as kind of this double both and. Uh, there's a Jewish midrash uh, trying to describe just this thing where he says, what is justice and mercy? And man says, well, the rabbi says, well, it's like a king who has crystal, delicate crystal glasses. If he pours boiling water into the glass, they shatter. If he pours ice-cold, frigid water into the glass, they, they burst. So what does the king do? He pours both hot and cold together. And that's kind of how we understand God's justice and mercy, that they're not two separate things. They're these two things that are poured out together at the same time that creates restoration, that creates healing, that creates fullness for someone. Uh, I think you're exactly right. And you remind me of something that um, Bishop Parsley, uh, the 10th Bishop of Alabama, once said. I hope I'm not misquoting him. Um, and I apologize. I plead for mercy if I, if I do misquote. Um, he was asked, what's your biggest concern uh, for the church of the future? And he basically said that he believes that, and we're talking about the Episcopal Church in general, he said that he believes that we're too focused on justice and not focused enough on mercy and that sort of struck me and you know we are a church and we were talking about this earlier uh that generally champions the social justice cause i mean especially when we were renamed the missionary society foreign and domestic and all that kind of stuff most people don't realize that the episcopal church our our full name is not the episcopal church our full name is jack I don't even know. It is the, the foreign and the foreign and domestic, domestic missionary. missionary society of the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. Amen. <laughs> Put that in an acronym. Yeah. So anyway, so you know, historically, we've been very socially involved, and that's certainly the the case today. Um, but uh, you know, I think sometimes we need to be reminded that well, justice cannot be administered without. Mercy. Well, okay. Let's take it back. You know, a few thousand years, the people of of Israel, the the Israelites, are in Egypt and they're suffering. And God hears their cry, he hears their, you know, their tears and their shouts, and responds in the world. And this is the kind of the great cataclysmic moment of Israel. It's the Passover. It's God, God pouring Himself into the world, rescuing His people leading them to new land, a land that they he leads them in to conquer, to take over at times by force. But the whole time, through Exodus and then through those next few books in Numbers and Leviticus, God continues to remind the people, and especially in the book of Deuteronomy, say, okay, remember when you were suffering from injustice. Remember when you were enslaved. Remember when you were beaten down. Remember when you were foreigners in a foreign land and how awful that was for you. He says, it is not right for you to pour that abuse onto others. It's not right for the abused to become the abuser or the oppressed to then become the oppressor. God is reminding the people constantly from that moment of the Passover. He says, yes, I'll free you, but that doesn't give you the right to then use your freedom to, to oppress, oppress other folks. And so this is where we get a lot of that language for um, social justice, right? The, our God is the one who hears the cry of the poor. Our God is the one who races down to lift up the lowly and, and you know, feed the hungry. Um, and that's part of the justice of God. The justice is saying that my justice isn't just for you. It's for all people. And because you've received justice, you now have the challenge of being merciful, 
of showing mercy into the world. So I think when Jesus is talking to this lawyer and telling the story of the Good Samaritan saying, you know, God's justice works through all people and it's also for all people. It's not just saying who did right, the Samaritan, this person you think would never do that, but also that person also deserves our mercy. They deserve to be seen. That Samaritan, that person you, you should hate, deserves to be seen through the eyes of God's love and God's mercy at the same time. So because you've received justice, you need and have this, um, you have this divine commandment to show mercy. That's why the Episcopal Church, a lot of times we like to preach about social justice, and we like to talk about it a lot in our Bible studies. But I think it's wrapped up in that conversation of mercy. And, and I think it's important for us when we're having conversations about what's happening in the world, like what's happening on the border of the United States right now, immigration, and we're having immig immigration debates, it's important to keep all these things in mind. Think of our own history and the places uh, stretching back all the way to the, the Passover where our history is lined with moments of being both oppressed and oppressor, the moments in our history where we've had the opportunity to show justice and where we fall on our knees and need God's justice. So, I mean, that takes me to world events and immigration. And how do we see the Good Samaritan in conversation with humanitarian crisis in the United States? I've had to change the point of view by which I look at the humanitarian crisis. I mean, the, the main lens by which I look at it right now is a lot of finger pointing and a lot of blaming um, right now, which does not seem to be very constructive to what's going on. And I'm not saying that... Um, people shouldn't stand up for what they believe is right. Uh, however, what kind of lens do I need to look at it through, uh, through as a priest or a, as a pastor or a, or a theologian? And uh, going back to Amy Jill Levine, when we look at this passage, the, the best way to interpret it is to identify ourselves as the one who is beat up and left for dead in the ditch. And so I'm sort of translating that uh, image into the United States as somehow we're beat up and left for dead uh, in in the ditch, and um, what I mean by that is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages. Yeah. But it talks about the love tank, which is sort of like your gas tank. And if your love tank isn't full, it's not going to run, and you're not going to love well. And likewise, if your car is out of gas, it's not going to run. And so I feel like our country's our our country's love tank is on empty. Like it's it's broken down. Our country's broken down on the side of the road, right? And we think that somehow the the most morally upright side of the debate is somehow going to save the country. Uh, if we're more, or if the Republicans are um, finally win their moral argument, then the country will be saved. If the Democrats win their moral argument, then the country will be saved. But as we've seen, or what we what I am seeing is that this is simply emptying our country's love tank. And so we need. What do we need? What can save us? Not our morality, rather mercy. And that's the very thing that saved the man who was beat up and left yeah. dead in the ditch. So something outside of ourselves, and you, you talked a little bit about this last week uh, in your sermon, but something outside of ourselves, something outside of the, these great United States is going to, um, we have to rely on something other than ourselves to save ourselves from being broken down and uh, left for dead. Yeah, I mean, you turn on the news and, and you see pictures of children in detention centers. And I don't think we have to take this into a political 
level. This is, I think, beyond our politicians. What our politicians altogether have shown us is that they're not able within their, themselves to solve this for us. Mm-hmm. That there has to be some divine intervention. And, um, and what we see are children in detention centers. Maybe we can all agree, like, there's an issue with immigration that should be solved politically. Maybe we can all agree that that we can't just have open borders where everyone's just running in or doing whatever. Like, we live in a society based on laws and principles. Mm-hmm. But it's not okay to have children separated from their parents. Yeah. But it's morally not okay at any level to say we're going to intentionally put kids in, in what look like what look like prisons and poorly run prisons. I mean, as a parent, as a human being, I think this goes across all political spectrums that nobody desires this. Nobody wants this and it's not good uh, for, for anybody, especially, of course, those children. And so we turn towards God and ask God to pour out his mercy through us into this world through us, through our politicians, through the security agents who can have compassion on the people in their care, especially in stressful situations and times, but to pour out his mercy into the world, to create an injunction. And I guess I think about the Good Samaritan is that there's this God who kind of intercedes on our behalf and uses these resources that we never expect. God's using a Samaritan that we would never expect. And maybe my you know, imagination isn't big enough, but I can't imagine how God will solve this. And maybe that's why we have to turn to God to do it. Well, it's sort of like, you know, you know, the, using the Samaritan as an instrument of salvation is, is brilliant because would, would another fellow Jew have had the same effect? Would the priest of the Levite stopping have the same effect? They were like, well, yeah, they were just doing what they were supposed to do. Would it, would it have called for amendment of life? Probably not. But if you see someone like a Samaritan, like if, you know someone that's your worst enemy, being kind and showing mercy, then what does that say about you, right? And so, um, you know, and so you know, we're talking about won't you be my neighbor, Fred Rogers? Uh, you know, one of the things that he would say during times of distress in the world, whatever that distress was, like we're seeing with the humanitarian crisis at the border, during these times of distress, look for the helpers. Look for the helpers, which is basically what Jesus is saying. The one who showed mercy. Look for those who are showing mercy. And that's going to bring salvation to the world. And so our neighbor, our neighbors are those who are the helpers. Celebrate those people. Look to those people. um, Because that is where our help is to come. Um, And so won't you be my neighbor? I love that, that image. And so as we're trying to figure out how to solve this crisis, um, I believe the way, you know, look to, by looking for the helpers, we're looking for how God is intervening in this situation. Yeah, I think, I think we need to turn our prayers towards the situation. And I, th- I believe in the power of prayer and the effect of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer. I think we need to continue to talk about it, though. You know, this is one of the things about Fred Rogers is that... It, no matter what was happening in the world, he addressed it. Yeah. You know, he, he addressed death. He addressed civil rights. He addressed war. I mean, if there was something happening in the consciousness of America, he was addressing it in a loving way, in a grace-filled way. In the same way, I think we can't shut ourselves off from what's happening. 
We need to watch the news. We need to see pictures. We need to see videos. We need reporters. We need to keep talking in churches and at social clubs and over suppers. And we need to talk about it until it's changed. You know, the thing about this Good Samaritan story is the first two guys who walk past, they they walk past and it's like averting their eyes. It's averting their consciousness to the to the badness that's in their presence. They're not even willing to see it so that they don't have to be responsible to do something about it. The difference with Jesus is when Jesus walks down the road, he doesn't heal everyone in the world. He doesn't heal every leper that is living in his time. He heals the people on his way. When he sees people, he stops and responds. There are even instances where the disciples are like, no, Jesus, don't stop. Keep walking. Don't let these you know, people who are sick and dying bother you. And Jesus refuses to avert his eyes. If there's someone who's hurting and suffering in his path, on his way, he stops and acknowledges it. And at the very least, we have to be able to kind of recognize the pain and suffering in our midst, on our path, on our way. And we do that by looking deeply into it, by acknowledging it, by having conversations about it, by talking so loud that our our voices raise up so high that it propels us to be that merciful change in the world. I think, you know, I'm sure there have been studies on this, but our our capacity, and going back to the love tank image, our capacity to show mercy, our capacity to, to show compassion is directly related to how well we have been loved, how well we have received compassion and mercy. And, um, and, you know, so anyone who's had like a major life crisis and has received mercy and compassion, they're changed. Like they are changed forever. And you can look at the stories of people. Um, and so, uh, you know, so it's not, so in, in the end, this is not really a, a, a moral story that says now go and be nicer to your neighbor. It's rather look to Jesus for mercy when you are broken down on the side of the road, because there you will find new life. There you will find salvation. There you will find the um, the divine energy or wisdom to show compassion to others, to go and do likewise. This is not some kind of moral command. What is Rather, this is the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ uh, in, in the world. Jack, amen. Thanks for hanging out with me today, and thank you all for listening. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. But until then, once again, as always, we're sponsored by the the hospitality, the love, and the grace of the Abbey, a ministry we have downtown in Avondale on 41st Street. We thank our sponsors for hooking us up with great coffee and pastries. And hope you can stop by the Abbey uh, anytime. Well, actually... You can't go anytime right now, can you? Yeah, it's open during the day, and uh, and they have coffee in the mornings and uh, some baked goods, so stop by the Abbey and enjoy. And Jack, I'll catch you next time, man. All right. Thank you, Josiah. Go in peace. Love and serve.